Well, good morning. How you guys doing? What? <laughs> doing good? All right. Um, actually, I'm going to get my water. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I didn't want to drink too much of it. It makes me have to, well, uh, sorry. That's a little too, too much information. Well, you're probably really sorry that you don't have Sam uh, this morning. But uh, I want you to know that I am, I am so overjoyed to be here. Uh, this is one of my favorite places to be in the world. Uh, obviously, uh, I love, our, we love our home church in London, and uh, we love them more than anything. But it feels really good to be going to the best church in town, doesn't it? Amen. Isn't that great? Is that arrogant? I don't think so. I think that's, uh, you know, you just got to face facts. It's a great church, man. I love coming here. It's just, uh, I love preaching here. I get a little nervous whenever I come to preach here because this place is very important to me. And um, the reason why this place is so special, and I could go on all day, but there's no time, you know, because you guys like have lives and you want to get on with that today. But um, the reason why it's so special for me this place is because we share something. We, we share a common faith and belief that our lives, the reason why our lives exist is to glorify our Heavenly Father by living a life that is wholly separated unto Him as soul winners, disciple makers, and church planters throughout the entire world. That's, that's the reason why we exist. And everything else that we do in life exists to support that one reason. Now, it's not to say that the other things that we do are not important, but it's this one faith, this one belief that we have in, in our existence, the, the reason for our existence, that that's what makes all of the things that we do important. That's why you going to work every morning is important. It's because it is there to support this one purpose that binds all of us together. And it's so nice to be able to have fellowship with people that share this one common faith. It is so nice to be able to come into a place and to just look at the person across from you and just to know that you guys get it. You're the same. We're family. And that is, uh, that is such a blessing. And I hope it is one that neither one of us will ever take for granted. I, I, I love to laugh. Do you guys like to laugh? It, it is my favorite thing to do in the world, is to laugh. And I, I get that from my dad. My dad is a really funny guy, and that's because he's a bigger man. My dad is a bigger guy. And that's part of why he's funny, because fat people are jolly, right? That we, we have to be, because it's all we got. So, uh, and so he's always really funny, and he would just make me laugh all my life. And, um, and so uh, I kind of carried that on with my family, and we just sit around, we just laugh. Sometimes I'm just by myself, and I just laugh like an idiot, <laughs> just by myself in a room like a crazy person. And uh, I love to laugh. And laughter is such a good medicine for you, right? A merry heart is like a good medicine. And, uh, and we know that, and it's so true, the way that laughter will uh, do that for you. It is literally like taking medicine. But we oftentimes, we, 
We love to laugh, and that is a good thing. But we oftentimes, we underestimate the importance of grief. And that can be, that can be so vital, and what we're gonna, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, can be so vital to your Christian life, is the importance of grief. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it's so wonderful to laugh, and I think that you should laugh, and I think you should have joy in your life, but there is a place there's an important place for grief in your life, and it's important for us to, to have that. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is the importance for grief. We're going to talk about the principle of grief. And if you want to grab your Bibles and turn over to Esther chapter 4, the last time I was with you, I was talking from the book of Esther. And so I wanted us to kind of drop back by Esther and see if we can't pick up another one of the many life-changing lessons that are in this magnificent story. It is just an amazing story. I love the book of Esther. I love Esther. She is a fascinating woman. She's one of my favorite people in the Bible. She is just an amazing woman. This woman is so virtuous, and she is vicious, too, in a good way. I mean, for me, that's like the perfect combination for a woman, is to be virtuous and a little vicious. That's like my wife. That's one of the reasons why I married her. I know, when you meet her, she's like all sweet and everything, and she's like nice to you. It's all a ruse, right? She's all dark and twisty inside. And that's what I love about her so much. No, I, I'm kidding. I, I make fun of her, you know, when I'm up here because um, she can't reach me uh, up here, but she actually is, she's not in here, so I can say this, uh, she actually is just really sweet all the way through. Yeah, there's no viciousness in her at all. She's just sweet all the way through. But I tell you what, what I mean by that when I say vicious, I just mean she is really tough. She's a tough lady. She doesn't seem it, but she's really tough, tough audience. I always go to her after I speak, and I'm like, so how'd it go? She's like, kind of my sounding board, and I get to find out what's really going on. And it's so important to me, too, that she, she does that for me, because she's a really tough audience. So I'll go to her, and I'll be like, so, you know, what'd you think? And she's like, uh, you know, could have been better. <laughs> and, uh, and then I have to call Jonathan Kindler for some therapy after that. <laughs> He's got to walk me, walk me back. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's devastating, but whenever she says, no, that was a good one, then I'm like on cloud nine for like the next seven days. It's wonderful, because I know it's true. And uh, she's a tough lady. And that's the way Esther is in this book. She is such a tough lady, I think that's the best way to be. She's an enchanting lady, beautiful lady. And what this story in the book of Esther, it's a very intriguing story, about Esther and the battle that goes on between the mighty Mordecai and the horrible Haman. Those are my titles. I threw those in there. But uh, it, for me, if it's not alliterated, it's not true, right? So uh, there is a doctrinal application in this book, obviously, where we see Haman as the forecoming Antichrist that attempts to wipe out the nation of Israel. And uh, Esther is the Jewish queen who has replaced the Gentile queen, and I think b most Bible students out there know that. And I just want you to know we are not going to uh, park there this morning, but we are going to focus on the personal application of this story uh, today. 
this magnificent story, and that's the reason why I wanted us to kind of come back to this. This story, it begins in chapter one with a king who throws this huge party for the purpose of displaying his bride's beauty. That's how the story begins. Kind of jumps right into the middle of events. You can feel like they're already transpiring. It jumps in the middle of this huge party for the purpose of him bringing out his bride, the Queen Vashti, to display her beauty. And uh, she refuses. Now, inspirationally speaking, this picture is a disobedient church or a carnal Christian who fails to live for the glory of their king because that is the bride's purpose is for her beauty to be displayed for the glory of her king. Now in chapter two, we meet little orphan Esther. And she is secretly a Jew. She was adopted by her aged cousin, Mordecai, who cares for her and guides her through the entire story. And Esther is a, a she's like the replacement queen. And she contrasts the former queen Vashti with her enchanting beauty. So the king throws a second ball for the queen and Esther is crowned and her beauty is then displayed, put on display for everybody to see. And Esther then, inspirationally speaking, she pictures an obedient or spirit-filled Christian or church whose beauty glorifies her king. So what is the difference? What is the difference between these two brides? What is the difference between an obedient bride and a disobedient one? What's the difference between an obedient believer and a disobedient one? And the answer to that question lies in chapters three and four. That's where we meet the horrible Haman in chapter three. Horrible Haman, he is a power-hungry force who plots to annihilate the Jewish people and Haman pictures for the Christian he pictures our constant enemy, the flesh, who demands that you bow to him or die. It is the story of Haman. In this story, Haman is opposed by only one man, and that is the mighty Mordecai. And Mordecai contrasts Haman. He is, in the story, a constant source of care and comfort and guidance for Esther, and he refuses to bow to Haman. Oh, it just drives Haman crazy. Makes him so angry. Everybody, because Haman is number two in the land. He's got the ring of the king on his finger. He has all the authority of the king. Nobody is more powerful than him, than the king. And everyone, when they see Haman coming, not only is he a mean cuss, but whenever he comes, people know his power and they bow to him. But Mordecai is like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not bound to you, and it enrages him, and he wants to kill Mordecai, and he doesn't want to stop there. He wants to kill him, and all of the Jewish people like him. The guy is a maniac, and Mordecai refuses to bow to him, and Mordecai pictures in this story the Christian's constant guide and comfort who refuses to bow to the flesh, that is, the Holy Spirit. Mordecai pictures the Holy Spirit in the story. Do you see the picture? Mordecai and Haman are battling each other in the story, and Esther is caught in the middle. Mordecai tells Esther 
that the only hope for her and her people is for her to bravely enter the king's presence unannounced, okay, which could lead to the death penalty in this context, to, to enter into the king's presence unannounced and pray the king for the life of her people. And by God's providence, Esther has been perfectly placed to endeavor to save many lives. But in order to do this, she will then be forced to reveal her true identity as a Jew, as one of God's people, and it will put her life at risk if she steps forward. You follow with me? On the other hand, if she does nothing, if she does nothing, then she and her people are sure to die at the hands of Haman. I mean, she's in a tough spot. It's dangerous no matter which way she goes. Will she listen to the faithful guide Mordecai? Will she trust in the unseen hand of God's providence? Will she take a stand for God and her people? Will she be willing to reveal her true identity? Or will she do nothing and let Haman have his way? The story pictures the dramatic battle that every Christian faces. In every believer, the Holy Spirit and the flesh wage war against us, and we are caught in the middle. The evil of the flesh, it threatens our life and the lives of those around us. If we do nothing and we let the flesh have its way, then the Christian life that Christ has always intended for you is destroyed. Our fellow believers are then left to themselves, and those that are lost in our lives then face hell. The Holy Spirit warns us that our only hope is for us to take a stand. But that means we have to then reveal our true identity as a believer of Jesus Christ. And that is risky. Either way we turn, there is danger. If I decide to follow the Holy Spirit, then I have to die to myself. But if I do nothing, then the Christian life that Christ always intended for me is destroyed. It's dangerous either way. Esther made the right decision, and she decided to go in and to stand before the king, to, to take that brave step and to plead and to beg on behalf of her people. She stared death in the face. This is one of the reasons why I love her, is because she literally stared death in the face. And she told Mordecai, she's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to face the king and I'm going to pray for our people. And she says, and if I die then I die. She says, if I perish, then I perish. Man, I, I wish that I was like Esther. So in the first three chapters, we really see the reality of our fight that we're in. We see the picture of that. We see uh, this compared then analogous to Galatians 5.17. It says, for the flesh lusteth, or it battles, against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you cannot do the things that you would. How many people feel that? Do you feel that verse? Nobody? You guys are all just good. Man, that is a relief. I thought I was the only one who's like struggling up here. But these, just like there are two men in the story, there are two men inside of you. 
Just like there are two men in the story, there are two men inside of you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, Paul says you need to put off the the conversation of the former conversation of the old man, he says, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You have the old man of your flesh, and you have the new man of the spirit, and they are battling one another, and the whole point of that fight is to discard one for the other. So we see the nature of our fight pictured for us in the first three chapters, but we also see what is at stake in this fight. We see that in Esther chapter seven, verse three. It says, when Esther came before the king, she answered and said, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Do you see what's at stake? Do you see what she's fighting for? She is fighting for her life. That is what is at stake. And the same is true of you. That is what is at stake in the fight between the spirit and the flesh in your life. It is your life that is at stake. And when I say your life, I'm not just simply talking about your inner life. I'm not just simply talking about your joy or your inner peace or having a clear conscience, even though that is no small thing. We are also talking about your outer life. We're talking about the plans that God has for your life, the providence of God over your life. We're talking about both. We're talking about the spirit-filled life that God has always intended for you to live. And that is the life that your flesh wants to kill. And he will not stop until it is destroyed. You can see that in Romans 8.13. It says, for if you live after the flesh, what will happen? You shall die. But if you live, but if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the, of the body, you shall live. And this is talking to saved people. What this is talking about is not talking about you losing your salvation or even getting your salvation. It's talking about the ability for you to enjoy the life that God has given you. And if you, can't, if you live in the flesh, then that life will be destroyed. But if you live in the Spirit, then you will be able to embrace and enjoy that life. That is what is at stake in this battle between the Spirit and the flesh in your life. Our eternal souls have already been purchased by God through Jesus Christ. Now, that's a big relief, right? I'm really happy about that. We have been purchased by God through Jesus Christ. Once you are saved, you are always saved. You cannot be unborn. But God's providence has plans for your life. And that life is under threat. Just like poor Esther, she was snatched from her own family at a a relatively early age in her life and then given over to this strange man to be his wife and to be the king of the Persian Empire. And God was the one who placed her there for that specific purpose. That was God's hand in her life. God put her there. And God's hand is on your life as well. And he has plans for you. And that life is under threat. And not just yours. Remember like Esther, she pled for her life, but not just her life, but for all the lives of her people. And we need to remember the same thing, that 
her life was connected with all of the others. God brought her to that place to save their life. If she loses her life, then they lose theirs. And in the same way, our life is inextricably connected to the lives of others. God has placed you where you are, not simply to give you life, but that through you, others might have life. And we must win this battle of the flesh and the spirit for the sake of our own life, but also for the lives of others. We are not islands. We always think, well, I can just enjoy my sin in private and nobody's getting hurt. What a foolish thing to say. What a foolish thing to say. I mean, we see it over and over again, the, the dad that is absent, or even worse sometimes, the, the loser dad who is present. And then their kids go off the rails, and we're like, man, how did that happen? I'm so confused of why their kids are having trouble, because we are connected to one another. And whenever you decide to just stand back and let Haman have his way in your life and the flesh rules in your life, it sends a ripple effect that affects this entire body as a church. It affects all of you, not to mention the people that God has intended to use you to win them to Christ. What of them? What will happen to their soul because you decide to do nothing. Because you decide to let the flesh have its way. We are not individuals only. We are individuals, but we are also one body. What we see in this story is not just the danger of our flesh, but also the desire of the Spirit. Man, we want to live Spirit-filled lives. But what does that mean? And that's what I love about this story is because it takes this really complicated, very complex doctrine. I mean, the whole idea of being filled with the Spirit, it's all kind of like, it's a very nebulous kind of mystical idea, right? Do you feel that? No? Okay. Um, it's, it's, all, it's very confusing sometimes when you think, what does that mean to be filled? It sounds like you should be like, on a hilltop with like a ukulele eating bird seed somewhere, right? I'm gonna get filled with the Spirit. And it's not that, obviously, it's not that at all. People try to make it that, and those people are weird. <laughs> it's not that. But this story may takes a complex doctrine like being filled with the Holy Spirit, and it makes it so simple for us. I just want you to look real quick at how the story ends. Esther chapter nine, verses two to four. Look at the way the story ends. In this battle between the flesh and the spirit, Haman and Mordecai, it says in chapter 9, verse 2 to 4, it says, The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities. This is after they've had the victory throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. And they lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them. For the fear of them fell upon all people and all the rulers in the province and the lieutenants and the deputies and the kings of the, of the, the deputies of the officers of the king says they helped the Jews. Why? Look at this. Because the fear of what? Of Mordecai fell on them. Why are they afraid of Mordecai? Because Mordecai was what? He was great. Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. Okay, now look at the last part, chapter 10, verses 2 through 3. Look at that. I mean, this is like, 
the very end of the story, it, it's starting to fade to black. The credits are about to roll. And this is what it says in the story. Look at it. It says, and all the acts of his power, talking about Mordecai, all the acts of his power and his might, and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai. Do you see that? The declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of, the, of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren seeking the wealth of his people. It tells us in, back in chapter 9 that he was not only great, but he waxed greater and greater. This is the word constantly used about Mordecai whenever they sum up the entire story. That's how the story ends in Esther. It ends with Mordecai being great. Now, what I want to explain, explain to you is that this word great it teaches us what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because at the end of our story, at the end of this particular chapter in your life, that's exactly what you want. You want the Holy Spirit to be great in the land. You want Haman to be defeated and hung on the gallows, but you want Mordecai, the Holy Spirit, to be great in the land. Now, what does this word great mean? Look at what this word great means really quick. The same Hebrew word great, you can see that in Zechariah chapter three, verse one. It says, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, right? Do you see that up there? See that word high? It's the same Hebrew word. It says, he showed me Joshua, the great priest. Same word as great. The word great also means high. It means high as in authority. He's the highest authority. He's not just a priest. He's the high priest, right? It's like my wife at the house right? She is a high authority. It's like my wife's opinion to me. It's not just another opinion. It's a very high opinion. High opinion. I, I find her opinion to be more important to me than anybody else's opinion. Like someone could tell me, well, you're like, you're, you don't uh, look like you're putting on a little bit of weight there, Brian. And I'm like, well, I probably am. I'm kind of fat. So, but if my wife were to say that to me, oh man, well, that would really hurt my feelings. Do you see what I'm saying? because her opinion is here. Everybody else's is way down here. High, she's very high in the house. This is what this word great means. It means very high, also means very loud. Esther chapter four, verse one, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai ran his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he went out into the city and it says he cried with what? A loud cry. You starting to see what this means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You want the Holy Spirit to be the highest authority and you want him to be the loudest voice in your life. But it also means big. You see that in Genesis 1.16, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. The word here, great, means big. The sun is bigger to rule the day and the moon is smaller to rule the night. Joshua chapter 10, verse 2, says they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. It doesn't mean that it's a groovy city. It means that it is a big city. The word great means big. The word also means mighty. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, but the Lord sent a great wind into the sea, and there was a, say it with me, 
mighty tempest in the sea. The word great also means mighty. Now, that's what I love about this, is because it takes this complex doctrine and it explains to you really easy what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is higher, louder, bigger, and mightier than anything else in your life, then the Holy Spirit is now great in your life. And that is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see how easy it is to understand? That's what it means. That is why God gave us this great picture book in the Old Testament. These pictures can make it so easy to understand complex doctrines. And that is our goal as a believer. That is our desire. We want the Holy Spirit to be great. We want the Holy Spirit to be higher, louder, bigger, and mightier than anything else in our life. So we know what the fight is and we know what is at stake, but how do we actually fight for it? How do we actually do that? Turn over to Esther chapter 4, verse 8. Well, uh, Mordecai, he sends a copy of the decree that was written by Haman to destroy all the Jews. He sends that to her to show it unto Esther. And he declares unto her, do you see that there? And he charges her that she should go in unto the king and make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for her people. Mordecai instructs Esther, and he tells her, there is only one person who can help us. And this is such an important point to understand. In the kingdom, there was only one person who was more powerful than Haman. Are you following with me? He's number two in the land. He wears the ring of the king on his finger. There's only one person in the entire land that is more powerful than Haman. If you're going to go up against Haman, that's what Mordecai's trying to explain to Esther. If we're going to stop Haman and his evil plan, there's only one person who can help us. Only one person has the authority and the power to put him down, and that is the king. What a beautiful picture for us. Because when you are fighting against your flesh, there is only one person who has the power and the authority to help you in that fight. And that is your Father in heaven. That is the only person who can help you in this fight. Your cognitive behavioral therapy is not going to help you. Watching Instagram videos of Jordan Peterson are not going to help you. Now, I like him. He's kind of groovy. He's a little weird and odd, but I like him. But he's not going to help me win this battle against my flesh. He's not even saved. He's not even a believer. None of those guys are. Your life coach is not going to help you win this battle. In fact, if you have a life coach, then I need you at the altar after the service. If you are a life coach, <laughs> I need you, okay, at the, at the altar. The point is, what, the, the point that we get from that is that prayer is how we battle the flesh. He says you've got to go in and make supplication before the king. He's the only one who has the power to help us win this fight. Prayer is how we win this fight. Prayer is how we battle the flesh. Victory or failure will be determined by the power of your prayers. 
Like Esther, if we're going to battle something as powerful as the flesh, there's only one place we can go. When we talk about battling, battling the flesh, we must not get confused. This is a spiritual battle. And so it must be fought on a spiritual front. Now, just if you think about like when armies fight, first they have the fight, and then when they win that fight, then they're able to advance their position a little bit. You following with me? They fight, and then they advance. The advancement in our life, that's obedience. That's what we want to see. We want to see our lives advance. We want to be walking in step with the Holy Spirit, and we want to live obedient lives to Him. That is how we advance in our Christian life. But before we can advance as soldiers and as an army, we have to win the fight first. And the fighting is done in prayer. The advancing is done in obedience. But we have to win the fight in prayer first. Prayer is where we wrestle all night with God like Jacob did. That's where we really defeat our flesh. The spirit-filled Christian is a praying Christian. And there is no advancement without a fight. And the fighting is done in prayer. You might feel like your Christian life has not advanced very far in the years since you received Christ. And that's okay. We've all felt that. We've all been there. But I would invite you to look at your prayer life. And more times than not, you will discover why. It's so weird, isn't it? Like we all, we, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And yet tomorrow we will get up and go about our business and not say a word to him. I don't know why we do that. We will go for days and days and days and not pray. I mean, thank the Lord that we have Tuesday night prayer meeting. If it wasn't for that, many of us would never pray a day in our lives because we cannot seem to just get on our knees and have a devotional and prayerful and uh, communal life with our Heavenly Father. And every day we think we're going to do it and we still don't do it. I don't, I don't understand. And we discover the reason why we're not advancing and the reason why our flesh is. The way Esther defeats Haman is by making supplication to the king. If you look at the whole story, that's their only strategy. She like goes to the king. She's like, you know, can you do bad things to him? That's the whole strategy. The whole story. I really don't like this guy. Can we kill him? <laughs> And uh, he's like, sure. He's like, I think you're beautiful, Esther. I'll kill anybody for you, you know? <laughs> so he does. He kills them all. Hester, Esther's like, thanks. He's like, what do you want now? She's like, let's do it again. <laughs> I'm telling you, she's a little crazy, but she's awesome. These, this is her whole strategy. She goes to the king, she prays, and she wins. Today I want us to look at just one single principle about this, and then we're, and then we're gonna close. One single principle, because actually in Esther you find 12 principles that lay out literally a kind of paint-by-numbers battle plan for how you can defeat your flesh. I just want us to look at number one, just one, real quick. Because, you got any people that are chess players in here? Few? The most important part of the, the, the match is your opening. That's the most, some people would debate, but they would be wrong. <laughs> the most important part of the match is the opening. And sometimes with this particular battle, this is one of the reasons why we struggle is because we don't start right. 
And so I want to tell you how to start. I want to tell you about the principle of grief. In chapter 4, when Mordecai learns of Haman's evil plot to slaughter his people, his response to that is so important. His response is really where our praying battle begins. You see that in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 to 3? It says, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes. You see what he did there? You're like, what, 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 why did you do that? It's a brand new shirt, man. You just got that. And Macy's last, he just ripped it, ripped his clothes. Why is he doing that? When was the last time we did that? We, that's not really a common practice in our culture. Why is he doing that? He rips his clothes and then he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And then he went into the midst of the city and he cried with a loud, bitter cry and came even before the king's gate because nobody's able to go into the king's presence with sackcloth and ashes on, right? So he has to stay outside of the gate in his sackcloth and ashes, mourning and fasting and praying to the Lord. And it says not only did he do that, but his example rang through the entire province. It says in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was a great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is a perfect picture painted for us. When the flesh is, is who is ruling your life, you need to understand this, because remember Mordecai is a picture of the Holy Spirit, right? When the flesh is ruling, when Haman has the king's ring on his finger and he's ruling, when the flesh is ruling in your life, that is what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is sitting outside the king's gate in sackcloth and ashes, and he is grieving. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life whenever the flesh rules. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he tells us. It's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit whenever abiding sin gets into our life and it sticks. It grieves him. You see kind of a complimentary verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 where it says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Take that fire of the Holy Spirit and pour water all over it. This is the response of the Spirit when the flesh rules. Just as Mordecai sits outside the king's gate, that's what the Holy Spirit does. We, got, we have some married people in here. Married, got some married people. You guys ever have a fight with your, of course. Okay, that's a dumb question. Everybody has had a fight with their wife. Have you ever met those people that are like, oh, you know what, we never fight. I, I, I'm telling you, you just, you want to punch them right in the face, don't you? Because if they're telling, the, if they're telling a lie, then they should, be, they should get a good slap for that. But if they're telling the truth, then you want to hit them more because of jealousy. That's how I deal with my jealousy. I, I lash out. It's a problem. But I think that's the way that those people should be handled. A married couple can literally, if you're in a fight, can, you can sit on the couch, you're getting ready to watch your movie or whatever, your shoulder is touching hers, right? You reach for the popcorn, hand kind of grazes, I mean, you guys are close, your hand grazes her hand. You've been there, you know what I'm talking about. 
She's maybe got the cover on. Whenever we're on the couch, we always are in the same position. We have the blanket over both of us, but it covers her entire body. It covers like a, about a six inch piece of, of like one knee on mine. And then she puts her legs on top of my legs. Like, so she's all stretched out, like ready to go. And I'm like in the corner with like just the, the frayed edges of the, the blanket. So you sit on the couch with your wife and you're so close. Have you ever been in a fight with your wife and you're so close and yet you guys are like a million miles apart? You'd be so close to each other in the same proximity and yet you guys are so far away from each other. You guys ever been there? You know what I'm talking about. And that's the way that, that's what happens when the spirit is grieving because the Bible makes it clear that God never leaves you nor forsakes you. He is right by your side always. But what happens is whenever the flesh is, at, is ruling in your life, it damages the quality of the relationship so that even though he's right beside you, he feels a million miles away. Do you feel that? He feels so far and you don't know how to pray anymore and you feel like your prayers go nowhere. You don't feel like yourself. You don't feel like you have any power in your life. You don't feel like you have control over things. You feel like there's a grief that is starting to spread to all the provinces in the land. And that's what happens when the flesh rules. As long as the flesh is in control, that's where the Holy Spirit will be. And what happens next in the story is so important because you can see in verse 4 of chapter 4, look how Esther responds. Okay, so two things happen there. One, the chamberlain, Haddock, comes in you know, he's been, a, he's been uh, appointed by the king to attend upon Esther, and he comes in and tells her, man, Haman or Mordecai is outside the king's gate, he's in sackcloth and ashes, and he is mourning. And Esther's like, oh my gosh, that's a terrible thing. She's like, kumbaya, what are we going to do? You know? And so she goes and she gets some fresh clothes, and she gives them to the chamberlain. She's like, go out there and cover him up with these fresh clothes. And she goes out there, and the chamberlain goes out there and put, tries to put the clothes on, and he refuses the clothes. Now, this is such an important picture. For one thing, oftentimes, whenever we are in this condition, we, we don't know that something is wrong until somebody else tells us. We don't often know what is wrong with our life until somebody else comes and tells us, just like Esther. She didn't know that he was grieving out there until the chamberlain came and told you. And that's why you need the king's chamberlains in your life. You need the preacher to tell you. You need your good Christian friend to tell you. You need to be in the word every day to tell you that the problem is that the spirit is grieved because there is sin abiding in your life. You need the chamberlains of the Lord to come along and inform you that the Spirit is grieved. And then when you find out, we often do exactly what Esther does. We try to take some of our surface changes, some of our self-righteous efforts, and we try to cover up a grieving spirit with some of our new self-righteous clothes. Maybe if I can post more Bible verses on my Instagram, then things will get better in my life. I promise you they won't. You know, I was talking to my daughter, Caitlin, and she was like, we were looking at someone's Instagram and she was like, oh, they're, they got, they're one of those people that have Bible verses in their bio. I'm like, is that bad? And she's like, it could go either way. 
And I thought, I thought that is so true. It was just classic. It was wonderful. Oh, she is so much like her mother. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but we think we, if we just add more religious activities, you know, to our life, a little more self-righteousness, heap that on, and we'll just try to cover up this grieving spirit. And just like Mordecai, he refuses the clothes. I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit in your life, he, were, he refuses to be comforted by you. He refuses to be comforted by your surface changes. The only, I mean, Haman is on a death march. He wants to destroy all the people. Mordecai is not happy until this guy is brought down. And the Holy Spirit refuses to be comforted, and he will not be comforted until that abiding sin that is in your life is destroyed. He will not be comforted otherwise. He is not going to be like us at Christmas time where we just play, pretend like everything's okay. He's not going to play that game. He refuses to be comforted. So Esther is made aware, and she runs to his aid to put new clothes over him. He refuses to be comforted by them, but what should she do next? When she finally realizes, after, you see in many verses after, when she finally realizes what she has to do, that she has to risk her life to save her people, when she realizes the battle that exists, when she realizes what's at stake, when she realizes what she has to do, look at now how she responds. This is so, gosh, it's so beautiful the way she responds. Does she go to the Chamberlains and to the guys and say, listen, I need you to pull out the whiteboard and we're going to look at some Bible verses and we're going to put together a strategy. You know, we're going to try to figure out how that we can install some new habits in our life so that we can just really overcome. The no, she doesn't do that, does she? It tells us, the Bible says that whenever she realizes what she needs to do, she declares and tells Mordecai, I want everybody to join you in your fast and in your mourning. What she does as a response is she doesn't try to stop Mordecai from grieving. She joins him in his grief. For the next days and weeks to come, she grieves with him. Now remember, Haman is still at large, and she chooses to join him in his grief. You see that, verses 15 to 17 in chapter 4. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. She says, go and gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day, and I also and my maidens will fast likewise, so will I go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way, and he did what Esther said. That is the principle of grief. If the Spirit will ever be great in your life, then you must first join him in his grief. We would assume that if the Spirit is grieving, that our response should be to stop it. And that is true, but that cannot be our first response. Our first response must be to join him in his grief. Look at what the Bible says happens when you do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. Now, that's kind of a jerky thing to say, right? He's like, man, I, I, I rejoice that you guys are so sad. <laughs> You're like, what? That's not very nice, is it? For him to say, but look what he's trying to say to them. He says, I rejoice not that you were just made sorry, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner. Now that's the kind of sorrow we need to have. Well, that's the kind of grief that we need to have. You need to be made sorrowful after a godly manner, or you've been made sorrowful after a godly manner, that you might receive damage, not receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow, what does it do? It worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now listen what he says happens. He gives you a long list of things here that are produced in your life because of what I call good grief. He says, for behold the selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sword. He says, what carefulness, do you see that word? What carefulness it wrought in you. Now this word carefulness does not mean that we're like stepping lightly. What this word carefulness means, it means to be very careful to do something. There's two words that make up this word. One means diligent and the other one means haste. It means you're very diligent and quick about it. And you are very careful to make sure that this thing gets done. This is what grief produces in your life. And not only that, but it says that you have this clearing of yourselves. That means that you have this great desire to be cleared of all charges. You have this indignation. That means that you become very vexed inside and angry at the sin. You have fear, he says. This is a soberness and a reverence toward God. You have a vehement desire. This is a burning and a longing that starts to boil up inside of you. You have a zeal. This is enthusiasm. That's like being jealous over righteousness. And you have, lastly, revenge. You want to take revenge on your sin. Now, that is what godly sorrow will produce in your life. It will, it will start to boil up inside you this great haste and diligence to be cleared of this sin in your life. It produces a kind of scared soberness and a reverence toward God. It produces this godly sorrow and anger in you, a good, righteous indignation for the right thing. And you're not angry at people, you are angry at sin. It produces a revenge in you, and you want to take revenge upon that sin. Now, it's real easy to be able to tell when someone finds godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. Because people who find godly sorrow are angry at sin. When people find worldly sorrow, they are angry at people. You see it all the time. Someone's like, yeah, I'm really sorry. And they're just sorry that they got caught. Because later, we get the long laundry list of how everybody did them wrong in the situation, and how nobody handled it right. I'm sorry that we did not handle your adultery the way that you thought it should be handled, but everyone's got all the reasons why everyone in their sin has done them wrong. That is a worldly sorrow. They're not really sorry. They're just sorry that they got caught. But whenever you have a godly sorrow, that produces a real anger and revenge towards sin. Now that's where, your sin, that's where your anger should be directed. Your sin is the problem. 
Satan is the problem. Your flesh is the problem. And that is where your anger should be directed. And that's what godly sorrow produces in you. Sorrow makes you angry at sin. Listen, if we're ever going to battle with our flesh and actually achieve victory, we must understand the principle of grief. If there is no grieving over sin, there is no victory over sin. If we're going to conquer the flesh, then we must cry over the flesh. This is crucial. All we will do otherwise is just try to cover up a grieving spirit with a new set of self-righteous clothes. So here I am. You are Esther. You're the church. You're the bride. You are Esther. And you know who I am? I'm Haddock. I'm the Chamberlain. And I have been appointed by the king to come and attend upon you, my queen, this morning. And I am here to tell you, just like he did, that the Holy Spirit is sitting outside of the gates and he is grieving. Now, how will you respond? Will you try to cover it up? Will you be like Adam and Eve and put those fig leaves on you to cover up the nakedness of your sin? Or will you join him in his grief? It's your choice. It's your choice. You know what we do? We just, we just turn on the TV and we just turn it up a little bit louder. and we, we force ourselves to laugh so that we don't have to think about it. Or we watch sad movies so that we can shed fake tears. That's what we're doing all the time, man. We're just laughing ourselves to death and we're crying over all of the wrong stuff instead of grieving with the Spirit like we should be. Will you join the Spirit in His grief? Will you fall to your knees and rip your clothes, figuratively speaking? Will you cry with the Spirit? Because the flesh and the sin who nailed your Savior to the cross is now your best friend. Will you cry with Him about the reality of that? David said in Psalm 6, chapter 1, or chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, he said, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return and deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake, for in death there's no remembrance of thee. When I go to the grave... Who's going to give thee thanks? He says, I'm weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears and my eyes are consumed because of grief. We need to join him in his grief. It is here in the grief of the Spirit. That is where we begin to see our Savior on the cross for who he really was, for who he is, who he was on that cross when he took all of your grief upon him. It is only as we grieve in our sin with the Spirit that we get to see our Savior afresh again. That is where that happens. You see that in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 10. We don't have time 
to read it, but he gives you such a beautiful picture that is worth your meditation. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's been acquainted with our grief. He took the grief of our sin upon him. We get to see where our grief has been placed. And we see our Savior afresh. People have been exploring for as long as they've been writing it down, they've been exploring how it is that people actually change. And people will say to me, they say, Brian, nobody ever really changes. Nobody changes. It's impossible to change. Nobody ever changes. And I'm like, well, if nobody changes, explain to me how I got worse. Right? Because that's... It's like a little joke me and my daughter have. It's true. If nobody changes, then how do we get worse? And if you can get worse, then you can get better. And there's only one way that that happens, and that is through the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. We wonder, where does the energy and the desire and the drive to really change come from? Where does that spark come from? Where does it happen? This is where it happens. It happens in the depth of real godly grief. That is where that vehemence starts to be born in your life. That is where you get, for a lack of of a word, that's where you get really pissed off at the sin that has stolen your joy for far too long. And that's when you want to start taking some revenge on that sin. That is where that place happens. Just like Esther, Esther had to choose so will you have to choose. Will you dare take a stand against the flesh? Will you take a stand against the flesh? Will you dare take a stand before the king in prayer? Will you dare to grieve over the flesh's rule in your life? It is not a spontaneous feeling that is brought on by a moving song or an emotional movie. Those are just empty emotions that will change and they will disappear as soon as you put a comedy on. It begins with a choice. What does James say? James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. He tells us what to do. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. That is how we enter into that place, just as James told us. We have to set some time aside. We have to find a quiet place. We've got to turn off all the electricity, uh, all the electronics, and get that stuff out of the room. And just the only thing you should have is an open Bible. And you should get alone with the Lord, and you should just spill your guts and spend some time grieving with Him. But I warn you, at first it will make things worse. Because your flesh will take this as a declaration of war. And it will be worse at first, but then it will get better. And all of a sudden, this vehemence, this zeal, this true repentance 
that comes from a godly sorrow will start to give rise in your soul. You will develop a godly anger for sin. This is how the battle begins. If you want to know, uh, what I want you to know is that it is possible for you to live a spirit-filled life. We don't say it, but we've almost given up on the concept. We don't talk about it, but we've almost given up on the idea that we can actually live a spirit-filled life, but it is possible. But listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 3, do you see what he says? He says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made what? That is where it begins. It is possible. The story of Esther ends in chapter 10 with the greatness of Mordecai. How will this chapter in your story end? Will it end with the Holy Spirit being great? How will this chapter of the story end? Will it end with the greatness of the Spirit? Will the Spirit be the highest, the loudest, the biggest, and the mightiest person in your life? We all want that, but we don't know how to begin. We don't know how to start, and we think we're very pragmatic people, and we think, okay, just give me the three-point plan. I've got to put some new habits in place. I've got to change some things. I need to change my environment. I need to go to a different church. I need to get a different wife. I need to get a different job. I need to get a different plan. I need to read another book, and we've always got to put some plan together, and I can fix this. I promise I can, and we want to do that. We want to be obedient. Even if we try to do it in a biblical way, we want to be obedient, and we want to get that sin out of your life, but I promise you, if it does not start with grief, it will never get to great, because sin is so odious in your life. It is such a tragic thing. It is such a bad thing that our Savior had to be killed in its place for that, and the seriousness of sin demands that before you ever rid yourself of that sin, you must first be sorry for it. You must be sorry for your sin. You must come to the place that you are sorry first. Before Mordecai and Esther ever put a plan together, they got on their face and they grieved. And we need to be sorry for our sin. The Spirit can be great in our life. But if that is going to happen, then we must first join him in his grief. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Lord, I pray that whenever the flesh creeps up and starts to rule in our lives and we find you grieving outside the king's gate, I pray, Lord, that we will not just try to cover you with new self-righteous clothes, but I pray, Lord, that we would join you in that grief, that we would humble ourselves before the Lord so that he can lift us up. I pray, Lord, that we would not try to just fix this, but that we would sorrow after a godly sort, 
so that we might see our Savior anew, so that we might see the one who has taken all of our grief upon him, so that we might put our hatred and our anger and our revenge in the right place towards sin and not toward people. Please help us, Lord, to live that kind of a spirit-filled life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.